Welcome to Movie Maker Interviews, the podcast where every week I, Tim Malloy, try to keep quiet and let our greatest movie makers talk about the art and craft of movie making. This week our guest is the fantastic Destin Daniel Cretton, director and co-writer of the new death row drama Just Mercy. It stars Michael B. Jordan as real-life death row attorney Brian Stevenson, who is trying to save Walter McMillian, played by Jamie Foxx, a real man who was wrongly convicted of murder in 1987. It's based on Brian Stevenson's excellent memoir, and it also stars Brie Larson. We talk about why the film stays so close to the facts of this astonishing case, and we talk a little bit about his upcoming Marvel film, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, and what advice he got from Marvel veterans Michael B. Jordan and Brie Larson. Before we dive in, I want to invite you to subscribe to Movie Maker Magazine, which you can do at moviemaker.com. If you are a fan of Margot Robbie or Willem Dafoe or a certain Christian Bale movie that is based on a certain book by Brady Stanellis, you're going to want to check out our upcoming issue. We will release some of it online, but not all of it, so don't miss out. Subscribe to Movie Maker Magazine at moviemaker.com. And now, the incredibly cool Dustin Daniel Cretton. He has an extremely patient affect that I found very calming. And I think you can tell I really enjoyed talking with him. So congratulations on Just Mercy. Thank you. How did this movie come to cross your path? I read the book. Um, if anyone, if you, I'm not sure if you've read it. It's, it just it, started. It's, it was one of the most powerful reads I've, I've ever had. It, it, was surprising to me um, not only the the subject matter that I was being reintroduced to in a very different way, but it was it was really surprising how how it made me both laugh and cry, um, yeah. and and also that it didn't leave me feeling just shitty about life. It, it left me feeling really connected to humanity in a in a in a way that that was inspiring me to want to do something and and so being able to be be a part of telling this story was a big honor yeah and so did you sit down and start writing this script or how did you did you option it first what was the process the the first big step was speaking to Brian Stevenson. Um, the The book was was given to me by um, our producer Gil Netter, um, who then connected me with Brian when he was out in L.A. here doing a book signing. Um, Brian had seen Short Term Twelve and um, and felt like I I could I could be the one to help him tell the story. Um, the the next person that we brought on was Michael B. Jordan early on before we even started writing the script. Um, so Michael B. read the book and really loved it and, and came on both as an actor and a producer. Um, and that's kind of how we, we started going. Short term 12 is your first movie, your first feature. Um, Second actually. Oh, second feature. Yeah. I'm sorry. Can I start that over? Um, Short Term 12 is inspired by the time that you spent in a youth facility um, working for two years with at-risk kids. Can you sort of talk about how that part of your life, first how you came to work there and how that part of your life influenced a lot of your film career? Because it seems like that really good deed, honestly. I don't know if you would put it that way, but doing something that's definitely for the good of humanity, doing the job that you did, led you to some really good film opportunities. 
Yeah, I wouldn't. I I wouldn't call it a good deed. Um, it was. It, it honestly was a job that that was spawned by the necessity of getting a job and I could not find one anywhere at the time um, and I, I stumbled into it I had a friend who was working there um, I, I had you know I'd, I had kind of grown up in, in high school I, I, I had done some some care type work before so it wasn't completely out of my wheelhouse but um, I was not expecting it to be as challenging and, and uh, life-changing as it was. And I worked there for two years, um, and it, it, really, it really opened my eyes to, to so much ab about myself and the way that I viewed the world. Um, and, and I do think that it, it, it sent me on a path of looking for stories that spoke to both the the harsh realities of life but also the 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 beauty of of humans who are able to you know hold hands through the shit yeah yeah and so short term 12 obviously leads to some other opportunities and eventually leads you to connect if i'm not mistaken with michael b jordan and ryan coogler i mean i i I met Ryan Coogler through the the festival circuit um, while Short Term Twelve was touring with Fruitvale Station, and so when when it came time to to decide who was going to play Brian Stevenson for this movie, um, Michael B. Jordan was the first person on our on our minds, and so I I was actually talking to Ryan Coogler on the phone about another project and mentioned to him I just finished reading this book Just Mercy and and this role just seems like there's nobody more perfect to play it than Michael B yeah. um, and I was going to ask him if he can just put in a good word and he was mm -hmm. like oh he just said oh hold on real quick and he he clicked up put me on hold and then when he connect reconnected me Michael B Jordan was on the line <laughs> <laughs> and Ryan was just like, hey, this is my friend Destin. He wanted to talk to you about something. And I was like, oh, <laughs> here we go. So I just pitched him the idea right then. And he said, oh, cool. Yeah, send it over. Um, wow. So, yeah, a few weeks later, he, he signed on. Incredible. Yeah. Did you have that much, that easy of a time with Jamie Foxx? Um, Jamie Foxx had a long-term relationship with Michael B. And they've been wanting to find something to work together on. Um, and my, Michael B. Jordan was, was actually, it was his initial idea to, to bring Jamie Foxx on. Obviously n none of us had any problem with that because <laughs> Jamie, Jamie's been, uh, kind of a, a hero of, of mine. I've, I've just, I mean, I've loved him since in living color, but then uh, obviously he, he's done some incredible dramatic work and yeah. to see him. To see him take on something like this was just a, a, a real, a real honor to watch. He tears it up. He's really engaged. Like, yeah, it's like one of those, I'm just watching the real person type of moments. You forget you're watching an actor. Yeah, he had a, a really personal connection to the material and to Walter McMillan. And he, Jamie grew up in, in a small town in Texas and just really understood 
this world so deeply. He, when I talked to him, he just said, I know this man. And he really did. He, he, he stepped into this character in a way that was pretty magical to watch. Yeah. Was there a moment making the movie where you just thought, yeah, this is working? Like, this is what I wanted to bring across? Yeah, there's a point. I'm not sure. I, I Actually, it happened probably on our third day. Yeah. It, it's, um, it usually takes a bit for things to warm up on any movie. And on our third day, Jamie was doing a scene that actually um, happens in the third act of our movie. Um, and he's talking to... to uh, Walter McMillan is talking to Brian Stevenson kind of at the low point and he's he he does a, a monologue about about how when he when he first got into this mess he thought he was going to be okay and he 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 thought he was going to be okay because he really believed that the truth was on his side that he he had the truth because at the time of this murder you know, he was with 20 of his family, family members and, yeah. and all on another, on, on the other side of town. So he felt like the truth was on his side, but he describes this long-term, um, thievery of, of the truth from his life that, that the established media and people holding the power were stripping him of his truth and not only himself, but his entire community. And when, when, uh, Jamie Foxx just brought that, those words to life, uh, it, it was extremely moving to everybody on set. And it really felt like we captured the theme of the movie in, in that moment. And uh, that's, it was it was a pretty exciting moment. It's one of those stories where, you know, sometimes Hollywood needs to I say Hollywood when I mean a person and a series of decision makers, um, but think that they need to change a story to make it more dramatic or something like that. And this story seems like you stuck very close to the facts, which are very clear cut, horrific miscarriage of justice. We had to stick close to the facts because Brian Stevenson was working with us all, all along the way and uh, making sure that um, we were telling a story that would resonate not only with an audience, but would resonate with lawyers who are doing this type of work that would resonate with people on death row who are going through this process and would resonate with the clients and the people that are in this story, some of which are still alive or their relatives are still alive. Yeah. And Brian cared, cared deeply about all of that and was constantly keeping us in check in the best way because we were asking him to. And, and so um, accuracy was, was definitely important so that people understand when they watch this movie, people can understand what it really takes. This isn't like a made-up version of what it takes to to prove somebody's in, innocence. Um, this is the long process that is in place right now in our system. When when somebody who who is innocent can be convicted based on absolutely nothing. Yeah 
in a trial that lasts one day. In Walter McMillan's case, it was three days. And, and condemned to die based on no evidence. And then when a Harvard attorney brings a plethora of, of strong evidence to that same court proving that this man is innocent, that it can take six years in the case of Walter McMillan, 30 years in the case of, of Anthony Ray Hinton, that can take that long just for that court to admit that they made a mistake. Um, there's something pretty pretty wrong with with that that scenario. Yeah. I talked to the screenwriters of Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and they said one reason that they didn't make Mr. Rogers their protagonist is that <laughs> I am getting back to your movie. <laughs> I promise. One reason they didn't make Mr. Rogers their protagonist is that he's such a such a good exemplary person that he doesn't really have an arc, and it seems to me like based on what I've read of him, Brian Stevenson is a really exemplary person too. It doesn't seem like he had a moment of doubt where he went, oh, I should go, you know, do corporate law or something like that. How do you write a character like that? I mean, it doesn't seem like he had a lot of, I mean, he's doing the right thing. He's doing the right ethical thing from the start of the movie to the end of the movie. And he's kind of unbreakable. Is that? It's true. Yeah, it's true. And, um, I can't deny that we didn't go searching far and wide for, for that for that flaw. Um, and everybody that we talked to for as long as, you know, from his longest friends to people who have worked with him since the very beginning, say, you know, his, his, his only flaw is that he cares deeply and he never stops working. Mm. Um, he, he does, you know, he... he he does have a moment of doubt in the movie, but anytime we pushed it to a place where he's like getting in a car and leaving or literally going to quit, it, it felt, it rang false. Um, yeah. and that, that wasn't the man, um, that, that he is. Um, there's, there is, you know, there, I do think that there is a relatability to the idea of a person who, jumps into a, a pool with with a with a very somewhat naive idealistic view of what they can do um, and and realizing how deep and wide that pool actually is um, in the case of Brian Stevenson he just you know kept swimming he just he 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 just didn't stop to this day and to not let people see that would be a disservice, I think, to the story. Yeah. I, I just want to ask you all these questions about the death penalty, but I feel like the movie states them. <laughs> I mean, it seems like you're pretty firmly against the death penalty, and this movie is just another way of illustrating the problems with it. Um, I mean, in, Brian, in Brian's book, you know, he... he the way that he states it is there he says that the you know the, the question shouldn't be whether or not um, a person deserves to die for the crimes that they've committed the real question we should be asking ourselves is whether we as a society um, specifically with the history that we have um, have the right to kill anybody um, yeah. and when when you when you have a system that is 
repeatedly proven to not be 100% accurate, yeah. it's really hard to make any kind of argument that we should be having finite decisions that that you you can later say, oops, we killed this person and this person and this person and we shouldn't have. Yeah. Um, it's it's really hard to make that that argument. But but Brian really does his book takes it doesn't stop there. He t- he take he he takes it to to the level of um, wh- whether we have the right to kill somebody in in the case of Herbert Richardson, who yeah. who actually did he did the crime that 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 he was accused of. Um, but when you understand the full context of the man, there's there's so much of our own um, our own society's contribution to that person and where he got to that it, it feels pretty unethical to send a man to war and bring him back and kill him for basically doing the thing that we trained him for. Right, and he he was horribly damaged by being in that war. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a stat at the end of your movie that is, it, it's, people gasp, I mean, when, when it screens, when they see that number of the number of people who the government gets wrong. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to sound like I'm anti-government, but it's like none of us trust any number of government institutions to do very small things, but we, we do expect them to carry out the most difficult and irreversible thing of all. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, the I think where the stat currently stands is for every nine people who have been executed in the United States, one one person has been proven innocent and exonerated from death row. And when Brian talks about that stat, he says if if one out of every plane that took off crashed, right. um, would anybody continue to fly? I think <laughs> I think probably not. Um, and it's it's definitely something that that we should all be thinking about. Have you gotten to see Clemency, which is another very good death row film that's out now? I'm I'm about to. Oh, what are you saying? <laughs> I get, I get, I, it's it's next on my screener list. When I'm <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're very different in that yeah. you know it takes place on death row, um, and yours partly takes place on death row. Um, but I got to talk to the director of that film, and she talked about some of the things that she did to get the atmosphere of the prison and to get just the the particular mood that she wanted to convey in her prison. Can you talk about, as a filmmaker, what techniques you used and what you incorporated to sort of get that sense of isolation, that sense of hopelessness? I mean, there, there were a, a number of things. I mean, sound is a huge part of it, and our our... Uh, sound designer um, Annalie Blank, who I've worked with since since my first movie, um, she came out to to um, Atlanta, Montgomery, and we we had different people going. Whenever we would go to an actual prison, we would have um, people record live sound, both in the cells. Anything from just like the actual sound effects of doors opening and closing to the sound of people walking through the halls to the you know the distant voices of 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 uh, prisoners, um, and that that ended up being a, a huge part of the sound design of the movie. Um, we also our our production designer Sharon Seymour. 
she, because we did, we weren't able to get access to home and prison. Um, she she found that the you know the actual dimensions and layout of of the of the death row there, wow. and we rebuilt it to to a T um, from from every detail, both both from the design the the layout that we had, but also from the the footage that we had of that place during the time through the sixty minutes piece. Um, we we were able to to basically re replicate exactly what that place was um, and on a stage. And also the execution chamber was also created exactly as the execution chamber was at that time. And so when, when the actors stepped into the, to these, these cells, it was exactly the, the feeling that Walter McMillan felt um, back in 1989. Oof. Yeah, it does really. It's just chilly. It's and you do really good sound design in the actual execution that you show in this movie, without being exploitive or um, sort of doing anything gross dramatically. You really get across the horror of electrocution, which is just so. You know, we talk about lethal injection and debate whether that's humane now. My God, electrocution is. Yeah. I, I, I kind of forgot. I mean, I kind of since that sort of ended, I kind of stopped thinking about it. Yeah. Um, really, really, a jarring moment. Um, to switch this a little bit, you have two of the biggest stars in the Marvel universe in your movie. You're about to join the Marvel universe. Did they give you any advice? Um. Yeah, they gave me a lot of good advice. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you can share. <laughs> um, you know, the, uh, they, 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 you know, Ryan, Ryan said, um, you're, you're going to learn more than you've learned in a long time, which is extremely true. It feels like I'm back in film school again. Hmm. Um, it's, but it, it's also a place that is, that surrounds you with, with working with some of the, the best people in the world and they're extremely good people to work with, um, both professionally, but also creatively and personally. They're, it's just a, a, a really great group of people there. So I, I feel really lucky to, to be a part of it. It seems like the lesser-known Marvel characters, whether it's Ant-Man or Guardians of the Galaxy, tend to make some of the best movies, maybe because they're freed of some of the expectations we have around, like, Spider-Man or Wolverine or something. You've got one of the lesser-known characters. I read these comics for years, and I didn't know who he was. Um, what, are your, what are your hopes? What are your aspirations for him? I mean, I'm, I'm just excited to, to give... You know, eight Asian kids or kids who look like me—something that I didn't have. Yeah. Um, I I think being able to see somebody that you can relate to up on a screen is a really powerful experience that helps you help helps you to feel less alone in the world. Um, and I hope this movie can do that for some people. Anything we should have covered that we didn't in our last minute? Can't really think of anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
right, cool. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. That was Destin Daniel Cretton, director of the new film Just Mercy in theaters now. And if you'd like, come visit us at moviemaker.com. Thanks very much.